This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Hester Barron about her book titled The Social World of the School, Education and Community in Interwar London from Manchester University Press. Um, this book is fascinating. Uh, I admit I'm slightly biased. I currently live in London, so I had a particular interest, but I think for a lot of people, this book that examines why schooling, sort of what was happening with schooling at this time, why this matters to our wider understanding of 20th century Britain and 20th century socioeconomics, a whole bunch of different things. Um, Because Hester's book really helpfully does an in-depth investigation into kind of this particular world of the school, but also integrates that into other things in terms of modern social history. So there's a lot to get into with the book. And so Hester, I'm so pleased that you've joined us to tell us all about it. Thanks, Miranda. Could you start us off before we get into the book itself, introducing yourself a little bit and explaining sort of how you came to this project? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Hester Barron. I'm a professor of modern history at the University of Sussex uh, in the UK. Um, I'm a social historian. I'm a historian of modern Britain. Um, so I teach and I write about modern British history. Um, this book, it was in development for a long time. Um, and I've been, it feels like it's a long project that I finally got to the end of. Um, so I was actually pregnant when I first started doing some of the research. And my son is currently applying for secondary school. So it's been it's been a long kind of journey. And obviously, I did other things in between. So I, I published two other books in between. Um, but because I think with any project that sits with you for such a long time, um, my ideas quite changed quite radically over the course um, of the 10 or so years that I was working on it. Um, so when I began it, um, I wanted to, I was interested in... Um, writing a fairly straightforward lived experience of the classroom um that's what I was that's that's what I was interested in that's what I wanted to find out more about but as I did the research um I became increasingly interested not just in the kind of internal relationships of the school um but thinking kind of outwards to think about families and the wider community the local community the local economy Chronologically as well, I, I, I was interested in, I started thinking about the past scholars um, as well as the futures of the pupils who were in school, their futures as parents and, and voters and, and workers. And so the book, in the end, um, really turned out to be a, a story about the, the social relationships that shaped into all Britain. So there's not just pupils and teachers in the book, but there's parents and neighbours and doctors and clerics and local businesses and, and school managers and, 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 and so on. And I thought that was important because for, for, for various reasons, social historians of, of modern Britain generally haven't paid that much attention to education. So if we look at the interwar years specifically, for example, there's been a lot of um, amazing work Um, recently on issues of community and identity and looking in nuanced ways at the complexities of class and gender and ethnicity. But a lot of histories of this period pay relatively little attention to, uh, well, either children's experiences or the social history of schooling. And so my book was about 
or what I wanted to do in the book was to argue that actually the school is an essential lens um, through which to view the history of uh, the social history of interwar Britain um, and that schools really matters and really matter, should matter to the historian for, for two reasons. So one is the kind of anchor role that they play in the community um, because obviously what happens in schools affects children um, and that in itself should be a reason for studying them because children's experiences are no less valid than those of any other historical group. Um, but they also affected the broader working class communities around them. So they, they, they were kind of embedded in daily life. Um, so schools matter for that reason. And then there's also they matter because of their role in social change from the bottom up. So this is one place, schools are one place where aspirations and expectations develop and um, a shift in attitudes towards education is more commonly attributed to the post-war, to the post-Second World War years. Um, but actually, I, see, I think you see that shift in attitude towards education amongst parents and children um, in, this, uh, in, the, in this interwar period as well. Thank you for um, kind of introducing us to the process and a bit of the behind the scenes of the book, because I think that um, sets up kind of what the book actually does really helpfully. And I'm, I'm glad you highlighted sort of the number of different kinds of people involved in the story, because I think that very much is one of the um, richnesses of it uh, to help us really understand, as the title says, right, the social world, not just one particular interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine, and in fact, I sort of know this because I obviously have read the book, um, there were a lot of very cool sources you got to use for this, a lot of very interesting sources. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about kind of the materials you were able to use for the book. Yeah, sure. Um, I used a lot, a lot of different types of sources. Um, So I used... um, Kind of government, local government records, and the the kind of official reports of education committees, and so on. I use memoir, um, oral history. I didn't do any of my own oral history, but I used um, uh, oral histories that have been done previously. Um, textbooks, uh, a little bit. I looked at textbooks. Um, I think my, well, not I think my my most important source base was um, school logbooks. Um, and school logbooks were kept by the head teacher of every school um, in the same way that, you know, head teachers today will keep have to keep records of what's going on in their school. Um, and it could be the most basic kind of information. So things like um, a child falls over in the playground and has to go to hospital because they break their leg or, you know, a teacher's absence because for, for whatever reason. Um, and teachers were required, head teachers were required to keep these very kind of bare details um, in their logbooks, and thousands of these logbooks are held in the London Metropolitan Archives. That was my main archive. Um, and some teachers wrote literally a few entries a year, a um, couple of sentences, you know, little Johnny fell over, Mr. Smith had tonsillitis, whatever. Um, but other teachers um, packed them with information or about what had happened in the school on any particular day. Um, and that means they become really time-consuming sources to use because the evidence is so fragmented and diffuse, um, but they can be hugely rewarding because the evidence you can collect there can be can be absolutely beautiful in its ability to conjure up particular moments of, of classroom life. Um, sometimes you can even follow individual children through the school um, and... What what became particularly useful as well. So the other thing, the other big source that I looked at um, was school inspection reports, which are held at the National Archives. So they're school inspection reports of individual schools, which were done every every few years. Um, and by um, matching up the logbooks with the inspection reports was particularly useful because the inspection reports usually gave socioeconomic details about this school and the area and the children who attended so I was able to get a sense of the different types of school um socioeconomic groups that are attending the school the logbooks were also useful as well as this kind of detailed diary that you've got in some of them they were also a, a, a treasure trove of um unexpected material 
And clearly, you know, this, they've got teachers would have this huge, thick kind of tome sitting on their desk. And they clearly, some of them just kind of used it as a place to file away newspaper cuttings or sports day programs or administrative instructions or other material that they 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 clearly didn't know where to put it. So they just kind of shoved it inside the logbook um, with the anticipation that at some point they'd get away, get, get around to filing it properly. And then they never did. Um, and so quite a few of the most illuminating sources that I use were just serendipitously preserved in that way. So a child, there's a child's school report, for example, or um, a letter from a parent or a pupil's essay or a, a school magazine. Or, I think those kind of things are so hard to access otherwise. Um, and sometimes the chance nature of that could be really frustrating Um so there'd only be half of a letter from an ex-pupil from to a teacher, for example. Um, or there were there were quite often things like exam questions that the teacher had written out, obviously to give to the classes, and then they file away the exam questions, but they don't we don't have the answers. There was a gorgeous set of exam questions um set to the children of one school in 1930, and it asked the teacher was asking them to write about the differences between a man and a gentleman, a native and a foreigner, and wanting food and needing food. And you just think, oh, what what, what would you give to get those answers from those children about what they thought about those those different things? So, yeah, in terms of sources, I, it, I've always been a bit mag- magpie in all my research, um, but but the, the logbooks were a particularly... Um, rewarding a lot of effort but a lot of reward that I got from them and and they they were my main my main base and what a cool sort of type of source and I remember reading in the book when you talked about these kind of exam questions without the answers I was like no (laughs) I want to know what the students would have said and perhaps my initial thought was I want to know what would have been considered correct yeah, well, yes, yes, Which exactly. Would have been fascinating, um, but despite that, despite those gaps, we do have quite a lot from the logbooks that is in the book. So, thank you for sort of explaining that. And I think the magpieness is something a lot of historians um, will very much identify with. Um, so, I'd love to move kind of into some of the sort of key parts of the book, and the kind of obvious place to start with is sort of. Um, why was this important, right? Why did education matter so much? And it really does come through in all these different kinds of people involved that the stakes felt really high, right? Parents were really quite invested in sort of what was happening Mm. in the school, um, among others. So can you help us understand kind of what the importance was of education in this particular time period? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think by 1918, education mattered more than ever, more than it ever had um, in ordinary people's lives. So in 1918, um, exceptions to the compulsory school leaving age were abolished. And so from 1918 onwards, all children from the age of five to 14 were receiving a standardised experience of education for the first time. And, and so for many, schooling um, or a son, and, a son or daughter's experience of schooling was a constant of everyday life. Um, and I think generational um, change is important here as well. So by the 1920s, children children at school will have had grandparents who were also at school. And in fact, by the 1930s, children probably had great-grandparents who'd been at school. So so schooling was just a normal, That that's, that's part of... It's, it's become part of childhood. Um, and, and then schools mattered in all sorts of different ways. Um, so they were act, they acted as sites of welfare, um, preparing children for their future lives. Um, depend, um, there were ideas about class and gender and nation develop. Um, and then you've got the many and varied interactions that schools have and, and teachers have with the local community. Uh, um, the other thing I would say is that I think the interwar period itself also represents a kind of particular democratic moment if we're thinking about the relationship between schools and their communities. So obviously you've just had the First World War and that changed expectations of, of state institutions and it also altered the relationship between citizens and government. So war service, obviously people, you know, people had worn uniform 
um, for their country. Then you've got the extension of the franchise in 1918, um, which offered new and democratic and egalitarian concepts of citizenship and social inclusion. Um, In the interwar period, you've got rapid technological change um, and the politics of consumption that were changing aspirations and expectations. And and that applies, I mean, I focused on London and and maybe we can come back to that, but that applies to London possibly more than anywhere else in the country. Um, And schools then became, or therefore became a kind of important place for all those reasons where... um, children and parents maybe had had a different kind of role to what they'd had before. So so parents, for example, might exercise an increased role as, as rate payers, their voters, their consumers. And the other thing, of course, is in terms of looking forward is that these children are going to be the children who grow up um, to be the generation who vote for change in 1945. So I think I, I've, I've worked, a lot of my work has been focused around the interwar period, not just this not just this book. And I think it's a, a really, I think we sometimes tend to forget about it because obviously it's sandwiched between the two world wars and, and the two world wars get a lot of attention. But I think it's a really important moment actually in terms of thinking about social change. So given some of those kind of particular dimensions you're speaking about, and obviously anyone who studies British history knows that London is often an exception or different or um, remarkable in a particular way. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about kind of why you focused on London? Yes. So I, from the beginning, really, I was quite clear that I, I I suppose because it started off about thinking about being really focused on the classroom as a kind of um, lived experience of the classroom. I wanted somewhere, I, I I decided that I didn't want to do a national study because I needed somewhere that I could get the kind of do the really detailed source work in a kind of micro history way. So and and do the things like matching up the log books with the inspection reports and so on. And even for London, that's a big task. Um, but I thought the national thinking about national might might have defeated me a little bit. Um, so I wanted somewhere kind of discreet. Um, uh, but I thought but London, I th- was also um a good choice in terms of its variety as well. So um, obviously an enormous socioeconomic variety, um, literally sometimes in the same kind of very small district, you get, you know, extremes of of wealth, um, you know, living a couple of streets from each other. And therefore that obviously affects the schools because those those children are going to the same same schools. there's um, variety in terms of um, ethnic background. So so pockets of London, or, or large areas of London, where there's uh, big Jewish communities, for example. Um, things like mobility rates differ in different parts of London. So there's some areas of London where there's rapid turnover of population. There's others where, um, you know, you get the same generations staying and, and going to the same schools um, over, over decades. So... I thought London for me struck the right balance between being able to do that really detailed, intensive source work, um, but also being able to get the the you know a spread. It's obviously not the same as a national study in that these schools don't represent, I don't know, tiny little village schools in in rural England or in Wales, for example. But it gave me a spread of different um, of contrasting um, experiences. Hmm. Um, the other thing about London as well is that it was. The, the London County Council was was self consciously progressive in these years, um, as as were other um, some other councils around the country. But London also had the kind of heft, um, the, the financial, you know, it, it being bigger and it not quite as hit by um, poverty, perhaps. And some say so. Some of the more some of the northern progressive um, authorities, and so I think again what I was trying to see in terms of thinking about changing attitudes to education and so on I think in some some ways you see that in London happening in the interwar period where it takes kind of the more the better economic conditions of the post-war years before you see it elsewhere in the country. Hmm. 
I think um, kind of what you spoke about of the different neighborhoods being very different, but literally physically next to each other or intermixed Mm -hmm. and how that impacts the school, um, I thought was one of the really interesting sort of explorations of the book of what impact does this have in the world of the school, Um, particularly for things that maybe in areas with um, less difference amongst neighborhoods, um, it would be sort of harder to disentangle kind of Mm. what impact education had on how students felt as compared to other things. Um, so I was really interested and quite pleased, really, when you sort of explained how uh, mixed in a lot of ways these areas were that kind of all had the same skill, um, that you addressed the idea of kind of identity and belonging and sort of the role of education in that. So I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of your findings mm. around what role skills and education played in creating some sort of unified feeling of identity and belonging given this London backdrop. Yeah, um, I should say, of course, when I say that you've got extremes of wealth, obviously not all of those children are going to the elementary schools. And I haven't, I should, I should just explain quickly what elementary schools were. So obviously you've got children going off to the, the richest kind of level um, of children going off to private schools. But London... In, in, in well across um, across Britain elementary schools in this period were the state schools that the vast majority of children went to between the ages of five and 14 14 was the leaving age so age 14 they left and they got a job there's a minority of children um, so we're talking maybe 15 percent um, who had the opportunity to win a scholarship at the age of 11 to go to a secondary school or they could pay to go to a secondary school. So again, amongst the middle classes, that you tend to get children leaving the elementary school age 11 and going to secondary school. Um, secondary schools charge fees so that you don't get free secondary education in Britain until after the Second World War. So because they charge fees, they were better resourced, they were more academic, they were more prestigious. So my research was just on the elementary schools where... Um, unless you could pay or you got a scholarship to go to secondary school, children would just stay at the same school, same elementary school until they were 14. So sometimes there's an assumption that it kind of matches onto primary schools or, or what we would think of as primary schools. And it doesn't it doesn't quite. It's kind of primary schools plus um, any plus the children who don't go to secondary school. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. Thank you for clarifying. Um so you asked about anyway identity and belonging, and you've still got you've still got the vast majority of children going to these schools. So as you say, there's still this this big variety of, of um, children from different backgrounds and so on coming. Um, and thinking about how schools created those feelings of identity and belonging, that was that actually made up the first chapter of my book because of, I think in a lot of the literature around the history of education the school is assumed to be um, disruptive to a sense of unity. So the school is is posited as a battleground for the for the clash of different interest groups. Um, in the British context, that's often class-based, um, but histories of schooling elsewhere have also emphasised classes or, or, or tension between different national or ethnic identities. Um, and obviously, I don't want to downplay that, and obviously that was the case um, in different places at different times. But in interwar Britain, I found that a lot of schools were making a really dedicated effort to try and foster a sense of collectivity and unity. Um, And there were various ways that they tried to do that. So in these years, um, school uniform became more common. Um, So not necessarily the whole outfit, but poor schools, even, even the poorest schools are reporting that children are wearing a school cap or a school badge. Um, school house systems are introduced, uh, school magazines aren't as rare as you might think, um, some schools have school songs, a lot of schools have school mottos, um, you, you get schools putting up honour boards in the hall to record significant achievements by pupils or ex-pupils, there's school sports of course, um, so there's a lot of effort being put into kind of um, creating a, a, a brand almost or a kind of sense of loyalty to the to the school um and and they didn't always succeed or sometimes or there were obstacles that might hamper that so facilities um some schools might not 
even have a school hall where the whole school could assemble, uh, for example. Um, but more problematically for the historian, it's also it, it's it's kind of easy on one hand to document that those kind of initiatives are taking place, but it's much harder to gauge the impact on children um, because obviously just because they belong to a schoolhouse or they wear a school cap doesn't necessarily mean that children then feel a loyalty or identity to school. So one of the things I was trying to do was was try and find evidence that might help with kind of gauging children's reactions and there are smatterings of evidence um that we can use to show that they had a positive effect at least on some children um there are lots of examples in 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 memoir of people recalling their school days fondly um and there's probably an element of nostalgia there um and actually though you can find equally lots of memoir uh, in which people remember their school days not very fondly. Um, so I was trying to find kind of contemporary sources. Um, and there is contemporary evidence to, to show that the school was appreciated by pupils at the time. So head teachers recording the visits of ex-pupils, um, for example, who dropped in to, to say hello, to catch up. Um, one of the things I looked at in more detail was ex scholars clubs old scholars club old boys clubs old girls clubs which were being established in numerous schools um, in these years to provide social events or support for continued learning um, and i think um that that those again those kind of efforts and and those kind of efforts came through very strongly in the sources but also the fact that that students or ex-students were responding to them uh, Again, there's a there's a problem with the or, or a, a difficulty as a historian is that the logbooks privilege those people who those pupils who remain engaged. So obviously they record the pupils who come in and say hello. They don't record the pupils who don't come in and say hello. Um, so initiatives that were taken are much more likely to be recorded that than than initiatives that aren't. Schools that didn't do stuff don't I mean they just have empty logbooks rather than you know filling it with with this that and the other so so there is a there is a a trickiness around kind of quantifying the the absence of evidence but then nevertheless I I thought that the kind of sustained engagement of many ex-scholars with their old school was still really striking across lots of different um schools and lots of different logbooks Mm. um and that, yeah, that that was that that, that comes out in the book, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was really interesting, and and kind of leads nicely to um, sort of another thing that I really appreciated the book looked at, which was this idea of kind of the social world of the school, but also the communities it's in, and kind of mm-hmm. this idea breaking down this perhaps. Um, obvious but false idea that kind of the school wall is sort of everything that happens within them is one thing and everything that happens without them is something mm-hmm. else so I was wondering if you could speak to kind of what your research found in terms of were the schools separate were they seen as separate from their surrounding communities kind of what was that interaction like yeah I mean that really gets to the heart of what I was trying to to do with the book because um as you say there's this kind of assumption or, or in the contemporary discussion and in in, in a, some of the historiography as well, that the elementary school is often represented as being very different to the home and street in its values, in its ethos, and the kind of assumption that there's an inherent tension as well between the school, um, which is it kind of seen as a, a state imposition, um, and the home, which is about working class community. Um, and that does... I mean that that there, there is a difference then <laughs> you know they're not the same kind of institution uh, in the interwar period a common reason why schools should be valued was was because of their or, or a common reason that was given as to why schools should be valued was because of their civilizing function and that language of civilizing was explicitly used by educationalists who saw schools as a way to develop middle-class educationalists who saw schools as a way to develop morality and behavior and citizenship in working class children um, and to offset what they saw um, as in in usually pejorative um, through usually pejorative lens uh, to offset the effect of working class parents 
Um, and architecturally as well, you know, the schools stand out. So in London, um, a lot of the schools are the old Victorian board schools with their imposing architecture, their, you know, red brick, large windows, gable ends. If you walk down a street in London now, you know, they've been converted to flats or offices or whatever, but you can always pick out what used to be the old school. Um, and so it made it easy for commentators to characterise them as alien to the working class communities around them and therefore representative of a different set of values. Um, but my argument in the book is that even if that was the intention and even if um, we can we can document that civilising purpose that was set out by educational officials and inspectors, that that purpose... That, that might have been the theory, but that wasn't always how it worked in practice. And that actually that purpose was often modified uh, maybe by teachers who might have a more pragmatic sense of their district. Um, parents might have alternative ideas about how the school could be useful. Um, children themselves, of course, have their own thoughts um, and that might change. Their, their thoughts might change as they get older. It was different for boys and girls. Um, it, there's, there are concerns of the local community, so local industrial firms demanded good workers, um, local mistresses wanted good servants, politicians wanted good citizens. And so schools were, you know, they're not just this discrete um, institution that plonks down in the local community and, and its four walls you know children come in have a you know exist within the four walls and then they leave but they're connected they're very much tied into the local community in all sorts of of different ways thank you for explaining um the different ties and i think even just that sort of last sentence is such a great encapsulation of it right parents wanted one thing students wanted another Mm. local industry wanted something else (laughs) you know there's just so many different pieces here but of course there probably is some sort of truth to the, you know, some fire for all the smoke of the idea that there is a difference, that they're at odds with each other. Um, And of course, when we think about kind of frictions between the school and around it, um, parents are kind of the obvious source, you know, parents and teachers. So what did you find sort of common areas of friction across the variety of London or did it change? What did those kind of differences tend to look like? Yeah, so there were various things that that might cause friction between schools and parents. Corporal punishment is probably the most common one. Um, And that's not necessarily the fact of corporal punishment itself. Um, But if there was a feeling that it had had been used arbitrarily or um, particularly viciously. Um, Although I I did come across the the comment of one parent who... um, uh, who wrote to the education officer um, about uh, about her daughter in, in protest about her daughter who'd been obviously um, punished at school. And she, she wrote that, my child is not at school to be whacked. She is there to learn and to be taught. I can do all the whacking my child wants. Um, and obviously that's, that's a good um, example of the parent valuing the educational function of the school um, but obviously thinking that discipline is, is something that she needs to be done, she needs to do in the home. Um, there's also ten- tensions over cleanliness. Um, and again, that's something that trespasses on the role of the whole home and the family. Um, so when children were sent to what were called cleansing stations um, because they've been found to have nits or, or lice or, or, or that, that kind of thing, for example. Um, so yeah, absolutely, there were frictions and... Um, but again, part of the, the the argument of the book in terms of thinking about the relationship with, with the local community is not that it had to be a happy relationship the whole time, but that that relationship existed, right? That sometimes it was it was um, uh, that it was tense, and sometimes it was in support. But that the, the schools were negotiating with the local community the whole time, um, and actually, you do find. Um, instances, lots of instances. In fact, the emphasis in the sources is on a more harmonious, um, harmonious relationship between parents and schools. Um, so, inspection reports are a good um, source for this, um, and they because they don't hold back. If they think something's wrong, 
you know, if they're if they're not happy with the relationship between parents and the school, they they don't hold back and they say so. But actually, across a range of reports, and you know, I looked at some, something like a thousand. Um, the suggestion that a school has good relationships with its parents are much more common than the opposite. Um, and schools courted parents. The best schools court actively courted parents, and a lot of the mediocre ones did as well. Um, and so parents appear in school life in all sorts of ways. So mothers might make costumes for school plays or they send in fruit for harvest festivals or fathers come in to help decorate a school hall or they help tend the school garden. Um, there's an expansion in the number of open days um, uh, in this period. So schools opening up their doors to parents for the day um, and some record you know, literally hundreds of parents attending or parents come to sports days or, or other events um, and and again I think in terms of seeing these changing attitudes to education you do see parents clearly appreciating the education that their children are getting um, so often serendipitously in the way that I said before you know because it's been tucked into a logbook um, I came across letters from parents to teachers thanking them for this that or the other um, and and uh, I mentioned generational difference earlier, but I think it's important here too. So sometimes those parents had been um, to that school themselves. Um, maybe, maybe they'd even be taught by those teachers. Um, and in those parts of London where there was little mobility amongst the population, you get those lines of continuity across a, a, a generations of a single family um, attending a particular school. And so that school then becomes a reference point um, across decades which was fascinating to read about um, and really kind of brings us back in some ways to that uh, conversation about identity and belonging, which I found really interesting. Um, but I sort of want to now, now that we've talked a little bit more about parents, I kind of want to pick up on one of those other actors that we mentioned, um, which is about employers. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about kind of what education was sort of preparing students for afterwards um, and to what extent that was kind of reflected in the curriculum? Yeah, so from as I said, for most children in this period, they're leaving school at 14 um, and any educational opportunities beyond the elementary school were extremely limited. So the vast majority, 80, 90 percent, are staying on in the senior departments of elementary schools until they until they leave and go to work. So there were academic scholarships, as I said, available at 11. Um, then there were supplementary ones at 13. And actually talking about friction between going, just going back to parents for a second, that could actually be another cause of friction between school and parents, because parents were sometimes criticised for turning down scholarship places with the assumption that um, this was, oh, you know, typical working class apathy to education. Um, but obviously there were other reasons why parents might turn scholarships, not least because the cost of uniform and books and so on, and all of all of those kind of things that weren't covered by the scholarship. Um, but as I say, that's scholarships are a very small minority. Most children, therefore, are being prepared for work when they leave at 14. Um, and so actions to prepare children for their working futures were taken um, within the school. Um, and as you say, this is where the, the kind of local economy comes in. Um, so head teachers might deliberately cultivate links with local employers. Um, come across examples of um, teachers, um, you know, writing writing to local employers and getting them to visit, or getting kids to visit, um, go out to the factories. Um, lectures, teachers might organise lectures by the by the local labour exchange. That teachers might volunteer at, at evening institutes. Um, there was a survey in in the nineteen thirties. Um, done by the the council uh, that showed about half of London's uh, the elementary senior schools were taking pupils on school trips um, to industrial firms. So that might be you know taking their kids out to to visit dairies or factories or the gas works or wherever, wherever it might be, but to get a sense of industry. Now, obviously, that means that half of senior schools weren't doing that. So this wasn't happening everywhere. Um, and also, again, there can be that disconnect between what the school thinks is good for children and what parents think is good for children. You particularly see that over um, attitudes to domestic service, which 
head teachers generally think is a really good job for a girl um, to go into, but parents are much more hesitant about it. So parents don't like domestic service because they associate it with um, drudgery um, and servitude, and also because it means that their girls have to go and live away from home. Um, there's, in terms of what the school is teaching the children and preparing them for the futures, there's also practical work as well. So that's things like cookery and laundry for girls, and it's woodwork and gardening um, for boys. Um, and again, some of that is, is explicitly framed around employment. So geometry, there was there was a one school, for example, where geometry was taught um, unusually in the uh, art curriculum of a boys' school um, because the particular factories in the neighbourhood required geometric drawing. Um, or I came across a girls' um, department that was deliberately choosing its sewing machines to match the models of sewing machines um, that were used in local factories. So again, you've got this, um, again, it, spe- it speaks to the connection of, of the school, and again, that embeddedness in the local um, in the local. Mm, I found those details really interesting, kind of just you can imagine sort of the thinking and the conversations and all sorts of relationships that would have um, been necessary for those things to kind of manifest themselves in this sort of evidence we can see, um, Mm -hmm. which really does kind of build this more multifaceted world of the skill. Um, And this is, again, not the only aspect of it, because the book also looks at welfare Um, And I thought this was particularly interesting, going back to your point of these are the children that then vote for change as adults. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about sort of what welfare initiatives were being brought in through the schools in this period and what the kind of reactions were? Yeah, so this is really important as well. And to some extent, schools had always been sites of welfare. So individual teachers have had always been a source of welfare to individual pupils. Then you get the new liberal reforms before the First World War. So they're, they're the legislation which introduced things like school meals and medical inspections. Um, and it means that by the interwar period, welfare was becoming one of the school's kind of primary and, and formal functions. So the most important duties are things like the provision of milk and meals, medical inspections, treatment of children, measures to get rid of uh, of um, uh, rid children of, of uh, lice or vermin or whatever. Um, many schools then took on additional duties, so maybe quite ad hoc, um, maybe liaising with charities or running boot repair classes or uh, negotiating with local baths to get subsidised rates for pupils. Um, and and again, if you read the if you read the official documents. Um, the London County Council in this period and and the Board of Education nationally actually really raved about the success of their child welfare programmes and and London in particular was held up as a leading authority. Um, That that, um, kind of self-congratulatory impression dissipated uh, at the start of the Second World War um, because, of course, the condition of the child evacuees from London and elsewhere um, became a bit of a scandal and dented this, their claims that, you know, they, that, that, child, that the conditions of schools had, had got so much better. But, but nevertheless, you know, there is there's stuff happening. Um, uh, there's a, and and maybe, not, maybe not to the extent that, that the council... Um, promote um i came across a a funny well it's not really funny it's it's sad really um entry in a logbook where there was no local swimming baths so the boys the teacher took the boys to the cinema to watch a film that showed different uh swimming stroke methods um and that's as much as they could could do um and obviously a lot for individual schools as well a lot depends on on individual teachers enthusiasm um and motivation but but yeah there 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 are welfare initiatives happening there's also a lot of poverty in london um in terms of how parents and children responded there are lots of oral history memoirs that recall the physicality of school as as a warm safe place um again 
there are others that give the opposite impressions. Um, and so um, I was kind of searching for, for contemporary sources to suggest that school could make a difference. And again, there are there are smatterings of evidence that suggest that at the time children really appreciated and parents really appreciated um, this kind of stuff. Um, one of my favourite examples is from a magazine called Labour Woman, um, which was a magazine um, for Labour women. Um, it, and and it, it ran um, children's competitions every month. And in 1926, it asked, it ran a children's competition, it asked for drawings under the heading of school after the holidays. Um, and uh, it published the winning entries. One of the winning entries was a nine-year-old from London. Um, and she'd done a picture of children running around um, in the playground and she'd captioned it, getting fit after the holidays. Um, and so that that was what school meant for her. It wasn't, you know, going, well, we go back and do maths we go back and we learn about history but it was getting fit it was it was you know um her physical health that that she that returning to school was going to help and uh, and i've got evidence that, that parents appreciated welfare measures too and, and maybe that shouldn't be surprising of course parents were going to appreciate you know measures that helped their children um and again this this tends to be a stereotype of parents and teachers at loggerheads but here they were often allies um you know they they both sets wanted what was best for the children um and sometimes parents therefore were actively consulted on on welfare measure measures um and logbook records um suggest that a lot of the head teachers time and particularly headmistresses time uh, was taken up giving advice and support to mothers who came in asking for help on on a kind of range of issues um in terms of the regard in which um head teachers were held i was particularly struck there were quite a few instances where um there'd been an incident over the weekend so say a little girl had been flashed at by a stranger or you know a strange man in the area or or, or, or something something that was that there was a reason to um something has happened over the weekend and on Monday morning the mother goes in and talks to the head teacher about it and then it's the head teacher who then goes and speaks to the police um and that says something about the relationship again that the, the school is a source of help welfare advice that parents are going to the head teacher as as their kind of first port of call I thought that was quite mm. quite significant and it happened there were a few examples of that I thought that was really interesting um and again kind of gets rid of this myth of sort of always being an adversarial relationship mm -hmm. and there being a lot more nuance um but speaking of kind of what's best for the children i'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about kind of the political side in a sense not that anything we've been discussing is not political in some senses mm -hmm. um but one of the things that children are were taught is how to be good citizens whatever that might mean in a particular yeah. time and place so can you tell us about kind of what this meant in this time and place what was a good citizen in this context how were these values taught yeah so there's been lots of scholarly interest on citizenship and actually citizenship and citizen education citizenship education and as you say it varies in different periods so there's been lots of um you know people are talking about citizenship before compulsory schooling is um comes in in the 1870s we we still talk about it now so um citizenship lessons were, were introduced by um uh early 21st century I think it was 2002 in schools um again I think it's particularly important in the interwar period because of the adjustment to a mass democracy and that massively changes the relationship of you know citizens with their governments one of the big debates in um in this period over citizenship education is about whether to teach it directly um, through timetable let um, timetabled lessons on on what was called civics, um, or indirectly through subjects like um, history or geography, and there were groups. There were external groups. Um, so uh, the, the Association for Education and Citizenship 
um, was founded in 1934 and it lobbied for specific lessons on citizenship. Um, I've got a nice quote from one of its um, supporters that, um, that, that, that where they say, oh, it's much more important that people know who collects their, their bins than who cut off Anne Boleyn's head. Um, so, so there are groups that are lobbying for specific lessons on civics. Um, civics as a separate subject, though, it was decided that that, that wouldn't be taught because it was decided that actually there was there was more than enough indirect teaching through subjects like history and geography um where patriotic um a patriotic kind of narrative um could be taught and children could be taught about um bound bound to their country i guess and you've also of course got the celebration of empire um so you've got the maps on classroom walls, which were ubiquitous. You've got posters on classroom walls from the Empire Marketing Board. Um, in these years, you've got the British Empire exhibition held at Wembley, which was in, in 1924. That was visited by uh, something like 190,000 elementary school children in school hours. Uh, most of those had been London school children. Um, and of course, you'd have got children going independently with their parents as well. Empire Day. Um, that was held on the 23rd of May every year. That was Queen Victoria's birthday. That was observed by the vast majority of British schools in the period. Um, so there's lots of ways in which citizenship um, and and obviously by, by citizenship, um, educationists are also talking about uh, things like patriotism and empire and imperialism and, and monarchy and so on. There's lots of ways in which those values are being transmitted to children. Despite it, it's something, ideas around kind of how do children absorb ideas of nation and, and patriotism and, and so and an empire has had lots of attention from historians. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, but I, I wonder if it dominated a child's education as, as fully as we might think. And actually, I think sometimes it was a secondary aim. It wasn't the, the kind of main purpose. So there's another example that I came across uh, of, of a school exam, again, or a school test um, that I really like that I found in a logbook. Um, so this one's from 1930. And the children... It was, um, so again, it's just a head teacher who's filed away in the logbook a, a little scrap of paper where he'd written the questions that he was asking the class. And p- children were being asked to choose between two questions. So the first question they could ask was to write an essay um, which asked about, I can't quite remember how it was phrased, but it was something about um, how is peace, why is peace more important than war? And it, so it was re- asking them potentially to reflect on Britain's role in the world and internationalism and maybe the League of Nations and the First World War and so on, all that that kind of big stuff. Um, Or the other option they could choose and each, each, you know, it was an either or question was describe a crossword puzzle and how to solve it. Um, And I think that that kind of juxtaposition um, that actually sometimes not only obviously with children not necessarily thinking about the wider messages, but I think sometimes even the school wasn't either. Um, and it, it wasn't a kind of conscious, um, uh, th- there wasn't so much of a conscious eff- effort to dictate what children were thinking about stuff. Mm. Um, and that the, the mundane um, and the everyday was just as important. I think that's really important nuance um, in understanding education in any time, in understanding history. So I'm really glad that you've um, mentioned that. And speaking kind of of any time, um, would you mind explaining or sort of discussing what you think similarities we might see continuities we might see between this period of interwar London schooling and maybe today's education system yeah I mean it's something that I was constantly struck by as I was writing the book the, the kind of echoes that reminded me of today um so as I alluded to earlier, this kind of book grew with my son. So I've kind of been, it's been through <laughs> primary school with him. Um, and I was constantly being being reminded of stuff. So uh, things like the debates over the curriculum 
um, the juggling of resources, um, concerns over urban pollution, which are as big in, in London in the in the nineteen twenties as they are as they are now, um, worries over effects on children exam cramming. Um, it comes up and, and of course all of that in the interwar period is against a background of economic austerity and the threat of war um which unfortunately of course you know both of which we're, we're you know we've got today um those echoes got if anything they got stronger when the pandemic started and they made me really think about schooling today so most of the actual writing of the book was done during lockdowns um, and obviously that was a strange time to be writing, um, well, strange time to be writing anything. It was a strange time. Um, but to be writing something that reflected on on schools and schooling felt particularly odd. Um, so at the time that I was writing, you know, I was measuring a successful day by whether or not we could keep homeschooling going beyond about 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and of course, all the way through that time, schools or the absence of schools were constantly in the news. So by the third lockdown, the government was um, belatedly saying that school was the most important place for children to be. Um, But in 2020, pubs and and, and shops opened before most schools. Uh, You had Marcus Rashford in the news, um, the campaign to extend free school meals and the role of school as as an absolute critical lifeline for children, um, children being able to eat. Um, There were concerns by children's charities about the invisibility of vulnerable children if they weren't in school. There was a lot of concern um, ongoing uh, about children's physical and mental health and what what they lost if they couldn't be at school. Um, And there were other things as well, smaller things that kind of reminded me of or, or made me think about parallels of the interwar period. There was a note that had been entered into a school logbook in 1922 um, that headmistress was absent from school um, owing to nervous exhaustion. Um, and I, you know, I was reading this in, in 2020 and thinking how on earth her, her counterparts a, a century later could possibly be, be coping. But the, the current, those kind of current concerns really shaped how I wrote the book. And, and that question of what are schools for, um, you know, why is it important for children to go to school was so present in the pandemic as debates range, raged about um, when and, and how to reopen. And, and so writing it during the lockdowns, it was a question that was constantly in my head. And I ended up writing the book, um, organising the chapters of the books around that question, what are schools for? And, and different chapters look, well, as you know, at, at the different function of the school. So the, the function of the school as a site for welfare or the function of the school as in terms of preparing pupils in the future or, or making citizens or, or whatever it is. But I think, well, to end on a a more positive note, I think hopefully that, or or rather it gives us grounds for hope that actually thinking about these parallels, we can be maybe more or or, more optimistic. So my research showed that schools can make a difference. So in the bleakest of areas in the interwar period, in the most deprived and the poorest of areas, there were schools that did everything they could to make their children's lives better. Um, so they took children swimming, um, they put on Shakespeare plays, um, they taught children the violin. I was struck by how many, even in the poorest areas, schools that were putting on violin lessons um, for children. And I think, I guess it's a reminder that, you know, if we can invest in them, if we value them, if we value our teachers, schools really can make make a difference. That is a lovely note to end on. Um, and so I really only have one question left, which is um, obviously this book, as you've mentioned, is something you've worked on for a long time and other projects during that period as well. So is there maybe a project you're currently working on or looking to start working on that you could give us a sneak preview of? Uh, so I'm having a bit of a pause at the moment. So I finished two major projects in the last, um, well, since the end of the pandemic, actually. So obviously this book came out this summer. Um, but over the last couple of years, um, I was all, as, as I was working on the social world of the school, I was also working simultaneously on a trade book that I co-wrote with my friend and colleague, Claire Langhammer. And that book is called The Class of 37. And it uses the school essays that were written by a group of 12 and 13 year old 
uh, girls in Bolton in the northwest of England in 1937. It uses those essays to think about their lives. So they wrote these, this class of girls um, wrote school essays on a whole range of topics like uh, what I did on Saturday, what I think of the royal family, what I want to do when I grow up. And all these essays were collected by the um, research organisation Mass Observation um, and preserved. So we use their essays and we also trace their descendants to find out a little bit more about how these girls' lives turned out. Um, and so that was a really lovely project to do. Um, but it means that I've published two books in the last 18 months. So the break is very deserved. I've just found, finished a really hectic uh, teaching term. I've got a couple of smaller projects ongoing, but I'm taking, yeah, taking a little bit of time to work out what the next big project is so so we'll see <laughs> what we shall see <laughs> well while you are resting very deservedly um listeners can read the book that we've been discussing again titled the social world of the school education and community in interwar london um just out in 2022 from manchester university press hester thank you so much for being with us on the podcast thanks for having me